Okay, this is John Stepling. Uh, this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 69. Um, and with me uh, in uh, Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Corey Morningstar uh, from the uh, beautiful city of Toronto. Hi, Corey. Good morning. Uh, Johan Edebo uh, from the north of Sweden. Hi, Johan. Good afternoon. Uh, Rob Snyder from the south of Sweden. Hi, Rob. Hello, John. Okay. Uh, and and I am in um, in sunny Norway. Uh, it's still sunny. Uh, there were a bunch of things to talk about, um, but but I wanted to say something at the beginning uh, that that maybe was uh, in some way the the something that I wanted to focus on a bit with this the topic of of this podcast in a sense. Um, and it, it just came out of conversations I had last week with people, um, nothing significant. And, and it wasn't so much the specific uh, topic of these conversations as it was um, getting a, trying to get a read on people's um, resistance, my interlocutor's resistance to believing in the ill intentions of the ruling class that that a lot of people in the bourgeoisie so to speak um a lot of people period uh have been conditioned to believe that um the state the ruling class institutional authority whatever you want to call it in all of these instances the intention is good um and as soon as you suggest that, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, it, it has no good intentions uh, if in Ukraine, it has no good intentions in Africa, it has no good intentions in terms of the World Health Organization vaccine manda mandates, it, 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 you, you immediately can see a lot of people's eyes glaze over or they will say, oh, they, you know, now you're getting into conspiracy theory. Here's your tin hat, you know, your tin foil hat, step laying down, you know. Um, so, so that's the first kind of obstacle, it, it, because that's one of the fundamental conditioning. And I was thinking, well, I really want to be able to talk to people, you know, I mean, I, I tend to talk to people in general who think the same way I do. Um, all of us on this podcast, for example. Um, and, and I find myself in social situations, uh, if, if I'm at the chess club or I'm at the, the, the kids' nursery school picking them up, I tend not to engage with people in any kind of serious conversation because I know it's just going to create problems and their prejudices are very deeply entrenched. And this isn't, it isn't a context that will allow for a serious face-to-face -face kind of conversation. It's just kind of inappropriate even. But, but, and social media is its own just toxic, you know, vortex of, of, um, <clears throat> of, of, you know, triggers and, and a, a kind of minefield of uh, reactive, angry, 
you know, uh, name calling. And, and so I thought, well, you know, all of that aside, all of these, you know, there still are meetings I have with people that I would like to be able to talk to them in a way that, that um, does not trigger one of these, you know, these knee jerk shutdowns on their part. Um, and so that's going to require a sort of slow, uh, incremental introduction of facts, of matters of public record, things that, you know, you can give them, they can look up themselves, that, that, that are irrefutable, that, that, you know, the state provides in many cases themselves openly and then leave it for these people to make whatever determination they make. Um, and this is very hard though. I mean, I'm talking as if this is an easy thing and it's not an easy thing at all. Um, if you talk about COVID, for example, um, and, and people will tell you, well, but, but there were hospitals that were overrun and, there, and, and you say, but, but no, that never happened. It actually never happened. I've yet to find a case um, that they can be verified. Um, that's very hard for a lot of people to accept because they saw it on the evening news, they saw it on MSNBC, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, uh, it's 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 <laughs> so it's something that I that 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 regardless of of sort of the difficulty and the strangeness of it and and my my reluctance to sometimes you know use statistics or or introduce certain kinds of um, very rudimentary historical facts I want to do that tonight today I want to talk about media I want to talk about these other things as well. Um, and I, and I want to also, just the second thing before I turn it over to all of you, is that um, this, this topic of, because there, there was a piece this week um, that in many ways, an article, I forget where it was exactly, Substack or one of those places, uh, that, that ostensibly on the surface was very good. But in fact, when you started to dig into it further, the, 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 the source material was primarily like Hannah Arendt, um, Hayek, the economist. It was this left anti-communism. And we saw that this week with an open letter from Cat Black at Off Guardian to Vanessa Bealey. And um, Cat Black and Off Guardian were indispensable in the beginning of the whole COVID pandemic. Um, they were a great, reliable source of uh, opinion and fact. Uh, and and yet, um, that letter is very problematic, and it, it, it's another example of this left anti-communism. And I should probably provide a link to Parenti's chapter from one of his books on left anti-communism. Um, and it's it's mostly left anti-Marxism as well, or just absent um, anything dialectical in these people's thinking and. Part of it, you know, you will, and there, there are key words, sort of, um, you know, dog whistle words in a sense that come up. One of them is totalitarian, of course. 
and we've talked about this before. So, you know, it, 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 as Enzo Traverso said, it has come to mean enemy of the West. Uh, but it has a more complicated history, and I'll provide a link uh, from Traverso's interview where he outlines the history of this word. Uh, and uh, it, it has been used by others that want to insist. You also hear people say, I'm, I'm against all kinds of isms, you know, which is like a, one of those immediate red flags that you're talking to somebody stupid. But, but it, it, this totalitarian, this reliance on that particular conflation that, that, as we've said before, you know, the people who built Auschwitz are identical with the people who liberated it, that these, you know, these two societies are identical. They're somehow totalitarian. Um, no, it's, it's a word that obscures more than it reveals, and, and it's used uh, to spread a kind of uh, de facto tacit uh, anti-socialism, a very reactionary apologetics of, for, for capital, for Western imperialism. And that was Cat Black's letter was uh, largely to insist that that imperialism didn't exist anymore. And I have found this with a lot of critics today. And and um, Alison McDowell is one who blocked me long ago, but a brilliant researcher, terrific researcher, but an anti-Marxist and her conclusions are as bad as her research is great, you know? And, and it's because they're, there is an absence of real historical education. I don't know how else to say it, frankly. Um, anyway, okay, so so that that was the thing that the, and one of the other words is globalist. And I just want to touch on it very, very quickly because um, I see Rob. I mean, Johan wants to say something. Um, the 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 term globalist is almost it's interesting is almost a stand in for. Um, it's a it's the transference the migration of anti-semitism um, instead of jew people will say globalist now it's it's um it's a but it's part of the structural anti-semitism and this becomes i've written about this too and i'll provide a link to that but those but those two words tend to go together totalitarian and and globalist but let me turn it i'll come back to this but johan yeah, a lot, a lot of lots of things to touch on here, but overall on the theme, I think it's a it's a very good idea in in general, and it it kind of goes back to why I got in touch with you guys in the first place, you know, with the the purpose of <clears throat> trying to get data, facts, and information out there for people to to be able to to see the situation and all its details and and make in, informed decisions in relation to it. But and I I think. I think there's a point here. I think a lot of the remaining trust in the, the ruling class and in the system hinges upon this perception that, you know, everything pretty much works good enough. And I, I think there's merit to the idea of building a, you know, a case for the actual horrendous state of the, of the system and all of the corruption and that. But, but these last two years, however, I... I've been confronted with this situation where people don't really know how to argue or think critically anymore. And, and the question is, to what extent are they, are people in general amenable to, to facts and figures and data? It's not something I wanted to discuss today was my, my observation that people nowadays tend to argue by sort of 
comparing sources of authority authority rather than than actually arguing the details as such and and you know they mainly try to do this qualify your source as a legitimate authority rather than engage with what you're actually saying yeah so so that's my my question are people actually amenable to to facts well yeah i think this is you know something we've also talked about before and it's it's the really the the core question in a sense that your most germane question um there's no question we we all of us here and individually and in our writings, I think, have touched upon the erosion of education, the, the acute indoctrination, um, the, the various registers in which this dumbing down occurs, the lack of basic math skills, reading skills, all of this. Um, uh, and, and so that, that is another question because you can give people public record, you can give people um, information, it's readily available and you can hand it to them personally uh, and and highlight the, the really important um, uh, uh, sentences you would like to focus on and they still won't read it. Um, and and if they do, it's it's so decontextualized for many people. The whole, the whole question of research um, is like it's a lost skill. It's like making buggy whips or something. It, 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 it's very hard. So, um, yeah, it's it's that's that's one of the that's one of the obstacles. Clearly, Rob, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I actually just had. I just talked to somebody for you. You know what? I don't talk to anybody <clears throat> for various reasons. Uh, I talked to John Stepling when you and your family arrived here to visit. <laughs> Sometimes I talk to you. On, <laughs> I talk to my wife. Otherwise, I don't talk to anybody. But we had some. We had some. Uh, a couple visitors um, uh, a couple days ago, and um, I tried to avoid talking about anything, as you said you do. But they kept bringing it up, and um, it was uh, it wasn't about COVID. It was the other thing, and so this other thing uh, they kept bringing it up and prompting me, and I finally responded because it was here's what I'm getting at. Another problem, another sort of driver of this inability to um, listen, to even think about facts, is that all of the sources that are understood to be authoritative and legitimate, they've um, really elevated this, this technique of projection where whatever is true about themselves, you know, these authorities, they project those things onto their enemies. So you, yeah, you have yeah. people... <laughs> Yeah, no, they go around and they yeah. say the most absurd things that are clearly false, but they but they're true about the source. Uh, well, it's, well the, yeah. yeah, let me just say this segues and we then I'll go back to I, I, this is a, the, the, the consolidation of media is a really profound issue. And um, that's something I will will provide links for too. that you know, fundamentally, um, uh, 
what is it? Six, 90, what is it? I have to look at 90%, six media giants. And I think one, it may just be five now because somebody just consolidated further. You have GE, News Corp, Disney, uh, Time Warner, CBS and Telecom, Viacom. Um, and, and, you know, this began in earnest, this consolidation in 2016 under um, Obama uh, with the AT&T mergers and, and buying up suddenly content and forging relationships with the national security uh, state. And, and that was the beginning of the, the, this acute escalation in, in uh, surveillance and so forth. Anyway, I, but we can come back to that. Um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rob, but I did, didn't no. I? Um, no. Corey, did you have something to say, though, too? No, Everything just, is new or just, new. I can't, I can't tell when hands are raised or anything. Anyway. No, I, I didn't have my hand up. I, I mean, I would just add that there's sort of this consensus, um, especially online in the social, social media, like Twitter sphere and everything else that because China and Russia are involved with the World Economic Forum and because they, I mean, they've actually both opened um, centers for the fourth industrial revolution in each country. I'm not sure. I think Russia opened that earlier this year and I can't remember what year China opened theirs, but because they're actively involved in that, therefore they can't, you know, they're a part of this quote unquote global, globalist cabal. And so all of a sudden they're all together, their imperialism is over all on its own. Um, I think that's where it's coming from. So they can't be supported anymore because they're all against this, but it's not that simple, right? Because we're these countries like Bolivia, like Venezuela, we all, they, they function within this global capitalist society. And, um, you know, especially in impoverished nations, like for instance, Bolivia, people do not want to be poor, right? They, so the governments also have to satisfy the people's needs and they have to operate within this system. And so it's just sort of this whole COVID thing, like one of the biggest successes of the COVID um, campaign would be this new um, wave of anti-communism, the framing as World Economic Forum as communist, you know, on the sea, right, Trudeau right, referred to right. as communist. So it's um, sort of really disturbing. And if we're not going to talk about the capitalist system itself and, and how it has to be dismantled, I mean, the problems that we have can never be resolved within this system right you know and then if you try to talk about anything it's like oh that's you know it's com communist and communism is bad there's just all this backlash against it and i think most people have like pretty almost zero knowledge like even right, what it is. right. So. well i i I wonder, I mean, because there seems to be, because I think that's all true, first of all. Uh, and, and secondly, um, there are people that, that, you know, you encounter on social media who are just, as you described, incredibly ignorant of history. They read um, <clears throat> stuff like, I don't know, you know, a New York Times endorsed history of somewhere and they think it must be true. 
Um, they they read books written ghost written by retired American politicians, and 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 largely they think this is and and their default starting point again is this idea that America is a force for good, that America should be the global policeman, and um, so forth and so on. Um, and they don't that that starting position includes the idea that that Iran is an evil, um, you know, fundamentalist state, fanatical state, uh, that Russia is, I don't know what these days, but, you know, malicious, evil, imperialist. Um, and and so, and that Cuba's, you know, totalitarian, um, authoritarian, uh, and and Castro was a dictator and so forth. It was just Castro's birthday. Um, the other day, August 14th, I think. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so, but then you have, then you have the other kind of person who is informed to some degree, uh, who has studied and read to some degree, but they read, they're not uneducated, they're just badly educated. They've, they've read really um, unfortunate source material. Uh, and this piece that bugged me so much this week kept referring to Hannah Arendt and how brilliant she was, <laughs> and she's not, you know, um, she's kind of like second tier, um, if if that, in, in my opinion. But but you know, is is was certainly um, in certain circles widely respected. But but they but it's but it's right on the edge. I consider Hanar right on the edge of like um, of like popular entertainment and serious scholarship. You know, she's right. It's it's not really serious theory. It's not really serious history. It's you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem is a bad book. It's actually a, a bad book. It's not a deep book, and that accounts for its incredible popularity. You know, it's like. Um, certain books you see, I remember we used to see in people's back pockets, um, uh, young uh, dreams and memoirs or whatever it was, you know, was, that was a kind of red flag. Um, Hannah Arendt was a red flag, you know, Anne Rand was a red flag. Um, anyway, okay. Um, Hiroyuki, I haven't heard from you yet. Well, um, I was just trying to figure out the uh, the technical thing. Just the, the yeah, I know it's everything, all... right? This Zoom thing—it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, it's all different. It's I'm, I'm yeah, confused. yeah. But but anyway, I I was also thinking that um 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 I I um I I knew that this this thing will happen. You know, the the conflict between the uh, the people who see imperialism as the, uh, the main focus of the uh, dynamics and those people who um, see the uh, uh, collusion of the, uh, um, uh, the elements uh, within the empire. And um, uh, th this is bound to be happening and it happened over and over and um, um, in many forms. And, uh, but right now, this is an uh, interesting point because I do think that the, uh, uh, the, the, the whole thing is at the critical point because of the, uh, 
capitalism um, coming to this point uh, uh, in which uh, it, it is not sustaining. And it doesn't seem to uh, uh, have reasons to sustain many of the, uh, uh, the dynamics uh, to perpetuate the, uh, the structure of uh, accumulated wealth and um, uh, exploitation and subjugation. So um, it, 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 something has to change. And those countries that are being subjugated, um, namely China, Russia, uh, Venezuela, Iran, and the uh, rest of the uh, um, uh, countries that have been defying, they have they have they have a choice. They 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 can go along with whatever uh, the empire tells them to do, uh, or outright defy, which will result in devastating results. That has been the case. That's a historical fact. Many countries have been destroyed. So, um, I, I guess. What's going on is that they are making decisions that comes in between. And that gives uh, 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 pictures uh, that are looking very different according to where we stand. We're looking at exactly the same thing. Um, and um, there, there are two discussions. We were talking about one thing, people are not informed, people are not examining facts, but there are people who knows. There are people who have been examining, examining and people who are very, very smart and they see it differently. And that's because this whole thing is looking different from uh, different directions. Um, Russia, yeah. China, those countries, they do collude to a certain extent in order to avoid the outright right. conflicts, yeah. you know? So yeah. there are, um, uh, it's very important, I think, for us to be honest and discuss mm. this, um, you know, from different perspectives. So I really hope that we don't antagonize each other right yeah. now. We need to <laughs> okay. talk to, you know, we need to talk to those people who have different opinions. Because I do think that if we um, get into binaries that are domesticated, we could get into uh, circular arguments and uh, yeah, it's, it's, I hear you. Um, I'm going to withhold my, no, I mean, I, yeah, there's a few things to say, but Johan and Corey both have, so Johan, then Corey. Sure, I'll go ahead. So, so I'm, I'm not sure this is entirely relevant to what you just said here, Yuki, but I think it might be. So, so I, I have this, perhaps an optimistic hypothesis that, you know, we have this, this huge disconnect. We have such a disconnect between facts and, and narrative between the official stories and, and reality as such that the, the mere presentation of facts in contradiction of these narratives will, will you know almost reflexively be disregarded. So I think it's sort of like people all already live with this immense cognitive dissonance, sort of double think in terms of, of official narratives in relation to the, the testimony of their immediate experience. 
that they're both already accustomed to disregarding counter-narrative facts, so to speak. <clears throat> and the, the cognitive cost of actually, you know, falsifying some aspect of the established worldview is thereby so high because there's already this huge backlog of cognitive dissonance in, in the background that a lot of things would unravel as soon as you let something through. And I think this has been exacerbated by the complex and multi-leveled authoritarianism of the, the medicalization of discourse we've seen the last two years. Uh, but that's another topic. But, but the optimistic thing here is like, I think that's this is precisely why we should push on with these counter-narrative facts, because the situation I, I describe here, it, it means that it's going to be very difficult to get through, but it, I think it also implies that if, if you make a good dent in the machine, you could very quickly knock open some, some kind of floodgates. And this yeah, kind of, I, okay, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I think I, I, I was just agreeing with you. I mean, I, I think it's, I think that one of my problems with that article this week was that um, I felt the author was sort of blaming the victims. You know, yes, a lot of people passively um, did what they were told. They didn't question things. A lot of people, did, you know, took the vaccine or did obeyed social distancing and all these different rules allowed their, you know, elderly relatives to die alone in, you know, nursing homes, all of these things that, that they should have objected to, but they were also, these are people who need their jobs. They would lose yeah. their jobs and not eat if they didn't do these things. And to blame them seems um, mean-spirited and wrong. I mean, just wrong. Anyway, Corey. I just wanted to add to that, um, about that article by Cat um, Black, just that um, the collusion per se of Russia, China. I mean, a lot of these countries, it's not really collusion per se. It's basically the future of AI and technology becoming enmeshed in uh, militarism. And, you know, basically if you're not advanced with your technology, you'll literally, literally be wiped off the map. And so there's yeah. a lot of this, you know, countries that cannot afford the technology and that are not advanced in the technology will have no um, military power, no power to protect themselves from imperial forces. Right. It's right. a lot like the uh, 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 nuclear arms race. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that the, the article by, by Kat Black was... Um, was really representative of, of, of a certain kind of um, confusion about the nature of imperialism. Imperialism is not something that just disappears. You know, it's a, it's a historical evolutionary um, evolving rather set of social relations and, and societal um, uh, forces. And, and uh, uh, it, it, but it, it, I'm sure a lot of people agreed with that article. The other one was was by um, what's his name? The one that I'm referring to was uh, Elmer Simon Elmers, I think his name is. Um, you know who who's a smart guy, but um, in my opinion, uh, really, um, in my opinion, the short version is that if you if you don't examine things from a Marxist perspective even if you reject Marx, you have to understand what, what that dialectical idea was for, 
for people like Marx and Marxist historians, um, even those that that um, you know I might disagree with on a number of other. Terry Eagleton, for example, who's a kind of Trotskyist, and and I wouldn't agree with on many things, but he's still he's still uh, an agile and sophisticated thinker. And and a lot of these people, if you if you're drawing on on Hannah Arendt, I don't know why I'm beating up on Hannah Arendt so much, but um, uh, you're not going to have that. You know, Hannah Arendt spent her whole second half of her career rehabilitating Heidegger's reputation, you know, and he was a Nazi. So there's that. Um, Rob, yeah. Okay, that's called dead air. Um, I see your hand Chat. up. But we could... All right. I was talking with muted. Uh, yesterday, when you asked for some facts, I decided to put some into my. I'm another. I have a. I'm another one of these idiots with a blog. It's funny how. Uh, not. I'm not referring to. You know. Um, criticism. You know, really solid criticism of blogs is necessary. But then there are other people who say, oh, he has a blog, you know, like, and they didn't even know blogs existed until five years ago. It's really interesting, uh, too. Blog's, an unfortunate, all... blog's yeah. an unfortunate word. I just want to add yeah. that. Mm -hmm. It's it's inherently, um, like, comical. And anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I'm the first to admit that my blog is, is just a... It's just a junk yard. It's just an absolute junkyard. Uh, I, I know that too. Uh, but so I put some facts uh, this morning onto it. I'll send you the link. Um, yeah. So way back at the beginning of 2020, listening to this asinine narrative unfold from day one, uh, I was just asking everybody around me, mostly my wife, like how can people not only know, not know anything about anything, but they, they don't even, even the most basic things about the, just the most immediate reality. Like we live in a world of viruses. When you talk about ICUs being overloaded with people with a, a coronavirus illness, I mean, compared to what? I mean, what, what's the premise here that uh, ICUs are typically completely devoid of respiratory illness. Is that is that the premise? Like compared to some imaginary premise where there is no respiratory illness in ICUs, uh, then this is an emergency. But you know, so this is one of the facts. Um, it's fascinating. So this is from official Swedish source. Uh, the source is, um, damn it, I can't zoom. Hold on, here we go. The source is uh, ICU reg SWE, so Swedish ICU registry.org. And it compares um, the baseline of uh, the, the top 10 diagnoses, like what are the reasons that patients are in ICU, which in Sweden is called EVA, not ICU. But, and the number one, on the baseline for the years 2015 to 2019 is guess what it's unspecified respiratory insufficiency that's the number one reason for patients entering icu in sweden every year and oddly in 2020 that number one 
reason for ICU dropped to number nine and was replaced with COVID. And also um, bacterial pneumonia dropped from fifth place to ninth, right? And this is in the context of, first of all, you will get Swedes to admit that uh, the mortality rate overall is certainly not in emergency. It's near all time low. Like well, there, there is no mortality issue at all. Yeah, and this is the interesting. This is the interesting because Gates was interviewed the other day. Somebody posted a couple of links to it, uh, admitting that they overestimated the, the lethal nature of COVID, and and yeah. nobody cares that that he says this. Um, uh, and uh, I'm I'm seeing a, a kind of entire uh, uh, you know a plethora of um, of admissions that from officials, um, health industry officials saying, yes, it was, you know, it was incorrect and so forth. And nobody, but nobody is yet talking about the fact that Africa had no COVID, um, but a lot of ivermectin apparently. Um, Johan? Uh, wait, I just wanted to share one yeah, more thing. I have, yeah, yeah. I have some, I did put some other facts, you know, favorite facts uh, over the last two years uh, of mine, uh, but I won't, I'm not gonna take up the whole podcast with reading these but i did at the top of it i have um something that it's not an ism it's an ing racketeering and mm. so i asked my swedish wife is is there a swedish word for racketeering and um she said i don't know i don't know Johan, you you tell me but she uh, put she translated it at google and it came up with blackmail and blackmail is not it doesn't cover it at all and uh, so I read to her this definition, it's from Wikipedia. So sure, you can, this is a real definition of racketeering. I find it to add myself. I think this is, it really covers it. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll read it. Yeah. Racketeering is a type of organized crime in which the perpetrators set up a coercive, fraudulent, extortionary, or otherwise illegal coordinated, coordinated scheme or operation, a racket, to repeatedly or consistently collect a profit. Originally and often still specifically, racketeering may refer to an organized criminal act in which the perpetrators offer, offer a service that will not be put into effect, offer a service to solve a non-existent problem, or offer a service that solves a problem that would not exist without the racket. However, racketeers may offer an ostensibly effectual service to solve an existing problem. The traditionally and historically most common example of such a racket is the protection racket, in which racketeers offer to protect a business from robbery or vandalism. However, the racketeers will themselves co coerce or threaten the business into accepting this service, often with the threat implicit or otherwise that failure to acquire the offered services will lead to the racketeers themselves contributing to the existing problem. In many cases, the potential problem may be caused by the same party that offers to solve it, but that fact may be concealed with the intent to engender continual patronage. The protection racket is thus often a method of extortion, at least in practice, almost done. However, the term racket has expanded over time and may now be used less strictly to refer to any continuous or repeated illegal organized crime operation, including those that do not necessarily involve fraudulent or coercive practices or extortion. 
For example, racket may refer to the numbers racket or the drug racket, neither of which generally or necessarily involve extortion, coercion, fraud, or deception with regard to the intended clientele. But because of the clandestine nature of the black market, most proceeds made from criminal rackets often go untaxed. And lastly, the term racketeering was coined by the Employers Association of Chicago in June 1927 in a statement about the influence of organized crime in the Teamsters Union. Specifically, a racket was defined by this coinage as being a service that calls forth its own demand and would not have been needed otherwise. And I, so that's what we're dealing with, <laughs> racketeering. I'll buy that. Um, Johan. Yeah, I, I think it's a good concept. And as you say, there, there's no, there's no word in, in, in Swedish for racketeering. I think, I think you might find one in German. I, I remember reading uh, Smedley Butler's War is a Racket maybe 20 years ago or something, and I, I, I reflected upon there not being a word in Swedish for that. It's a, it's a good book. It's, it's a kind of blunt, but it's, it's worth reading anyway. So, so uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that we've had a death deficit in Sweden since early 21, which, yeah, and I, I met this lovely, nice old lady in, in church today who was... She works in the hospital extra and, and was um, you know, placing chairs at distances from one another because she wanted to emphasize that we, we, have, the, we have these headlines on Corona spreading around again. Uh, so, so there's kind of a, yeah, this, there's a disconnect between this death deficit and the, the, the new, newly awoken COVID fears. So I just wanted to ask you all, uh, a question relating to all this. So, so the other day I, I was rejected as a conspiracy theorist for arguing that the finance sector is parasitic on the real economy, which I thought was, you know, kind of self-evident. So, so my question is in relation to the topic for today, how would you go about proving to somebody uninitiated something like, you know, the basic premises of uh, surplus value exploitation or the presence of uh, Western imperialism in the framework of global politics. How would you argue that simply and clearly? <clears throat> yeah, I think that's, um, that's part of the problem is that, that probably there is no simple, um, these are, you know, complex, complex questions and, and they require complex answers but um you know if if uh if we go back to media for example which for some reason i was thinking a lot about this week um you know again that that the consolidation a staggering consolidating of media ownership has taken place over the last like seven or eight years um beginning in i believe 2016 and you have this massive media uh, empire that uh, includes, you know, varied and and uh, uh, platforms and 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 um, systems of of communication. And we're talking about television and radio. We're talking about streaming sites, everything that's on the internet, um, and and it's owned by. A very few people. It's owned by you know six six corporations, and I think it's just five now actually, um, because I forget who bought who. But but uh, 
though and those six corporations if you look at the ownership of those six corporations um you see a further consolidation you see the same names the same um <clears throat> you know vanguard and and blackrock and and all the various um names that that everybody i'm trying to move around here on my computer so okay um uh you know these these various um funding the gates foundation and so forth um or you can go and look at because again this is a matter of public record it's so you look at exactly what companies the gates bill and melinda gates foundation um owns um you can look at the the investigative journalists who covered the gates foundation uh activities in india their activities in africa you can read corey morningstar for example in the wrong kind of green and all the research and investigative journalism that corey did regarding um the great reset the 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 um, world wildlife fund for example in africa the things these people have said i mean there was a world economic forum summit of some sort the other day in which that twink israeli <laughs> futurist whatever he can, and i can never remember his name i have i have a psychological block yuval harari i think it is um talked about we could do we could do very well the planet could do very well without 90 percent of the population that that you know they don't really contribute anything i mean these voices uh are becoming more and more open and less and less disguised so you know how to convey this stuff to people well i would say look at the consolidation of ownership look at the fact that that these media outlets we can show you demonstrably that they say the same thing their their message is identical people have done mashups and you know video montage of of how many you know 27 newscasters saying build back better in the same you know the same paragraph same sentence rather over and over and over justin trudeau says the same things as jacinda a hurt i mean you know the same things as Liz trust now the same things as biden or biden's press secretary this um really irritating woman now but but you know the <laughs> okay so i won't digress the the point being that that to me that's one starting point uh, if people have no problem with that, you know, I don't know, perhaps then people are unreachable. I don't know, because there is there is such a fundamental, fundamentally, you know, anti-democratic reality in those in those um, in those facts that it seems hard to that, that for anybody to deny it. Um, Corey and then Yohan and then Hiroyuki. Corey. I mean, sorry okay, about this, that. Okay, because you I, guys I, in dead air, man. I'm telling there, you. There's someone uh, moving in outside, so it's noisy here today. Okay, so speaking of consolidation, I wanted just to touch base on the Universal Healthcare um, 2030 project. And I just wanted to read this because it just um, shows again another vital um, sort of initiative that COVID is making possible the whole COVID campaign, the COVID. So quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has underscored the importance of accelerating progress towards universal health coverage and health for all 
and with the midpoint of the Sustainable Development Goals fast approaching is a pivotal time for global health. UHC movement is calling for global leaders to seize the moment ahead of the United Nations high-level meeting on universal healthcare in September 2023. And then it just, I'm just going to add who's involved here, focusing on um, a PhD approach as the best, what's that, um, primary healthcare instead of privatization, they call it primary healthcare approach, as the best and most cost-effective way to reorient um, health systems. That universal healthcare partnership hosted by the WHO special program on primary healthcare serves as a country support instrument covering all health system technical areas with over 120 policy advisors working with same WHO country offices or seconded to ministries of health. So this is um, basically universal healthcare privatization in Canada. The leading news story over the past week when a return on CBC is all about our health systems falling apart and failing, um, lack of nurses, lack of doctors, um, people dying in, in, in waiting rooms. That's been the leading story and how we have to um, revamp our whole healthcare system. So I'm, I don't know what's going on right now everywhere else. So I'm assuming that's sort of a leading story everywhere as they, um, you know, progress towards this um, you know, big, very big thing along with UBI, our whole healthcare system will be global and privatized. And I think right now there's, I mean, it started with 26 partners, obviously, who um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, the Canadian government's involved in it as a partner. And yeah, so I just wanted to touch base. Yeah, and it's happening. It's happening. It's happening um, largely under the radar. I mean, I've, nobody, very few people are aware that that these these things are taking place right now. Um, Johan? Yeah, I, this is kind of bone chilling stuff, I think. But and in, in the interests of, of providing data and and, uh, and facts and figures and so on, just in relation to what you just said, John, I, I wanted to mention a book by. Robert McChesney, it's called Rich Media for Democracy, Communication, Politics in Dubious Times. And it kind of, uh, it gives you an historical overview of the consolidation of the media in, in the Western hemisphere since the 30s and onwards. It's, it's a very good, very well-researched book. And it kind of describes a, a parallel development or a precursor of, of what you just described, Corey. Um, yeah, did, are we, <laughs> everything on Zoom today is mysterious to me. Um, were you done there, Johan? Okay. I was done. You can go ahead, Hiroki. Okay, uh, Hiroyuki. Uh, I was just thinking about what Rob was saying, and uh, uh, I have talked about rocketeering, and um, uh, that's a good analogy um uh for the the whole thing basically um um but the um uh um it's masked basically um by um many elements um for example imperialism uh would mask um any nefarious uh, pressures uh, from the uh, empire in uh, certain countries. If you reside in a proxy country, 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm just going to yeah. interrupt you to say this is a great point. Continue, please. Yeah, you can't really see what's going on. And there is no means to go against because the demands are unconditional. And um, what? And if you want to uh, sustain your existence within that structure, you're going to have to do things that uh, go against your well-being, basically, uh, ultimately. And this yeah. happens. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. And this happens on many levels. I mean, if you if your existence is conditional to an entity within the empire, um, there's no, not, there's nothing you can do. Like if you belong to a company, if you belong to an institution, if you belong to a community that are controlled by the empire, um, there's nothing you can do because you, you're, yeah. you know, so this is, and you can't even see what's, what's wrong. So this is, um, and this is, this happens in many, many layers and it happens uh, within class structure. It happens in our heads as well. We have yeah. heads that mask everything because, you know, we live in certain worldviews. We live in certain ideologies. We cannot see anything beyond within identity. You know, that's the same thing. So uh, social institution, uh, institutions are the same thing. We have, you know, we have like countless uh, social institutions governing us and all of them does this. All of them capture us in these little cages. And so this is, this is a really, really uh, difficult uh, situation. But if you know what I'm talking about, it's easy to, pretty easy to explain and pretty easy to understand. But what well, you are left with is that we are dealing with this big bully and you know people can't even see it it's it's a it's a simple situation you know it, well yeah i mean but it's um, complex you know yeah i wish it were simple um but but this but this is the nature of propaganda right i mean this is what we're talking about well, um, is i i i had a conversation with a guy this is a last year but I remember it because I found it so irritating. Um, but he he's he's a local person, and and um, and I didn't want to have a fight with him, and and um, so I didn't say anything. But we were talking about the Norwegian uh, state uh, response to COVID, the shutting down of borders with Sweden, the the you know um, insistence upon no social gatherings. People were essentially kept indoors and so on. And I said, well, but but this decision, who who informed the Minister of Health in Norway to 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 make this to you know make this proposal to to suggest to the prime minister that this is what should happen? Somebody had to have informed them. I mean, we assume it's the World Health Organization or or you know the CDC or something. And I said, and he said, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess so, of course, you know. And I said, well, but, you know, the, ultimately there is there is something political. There is a politicized decision making process here. This clearly can't be based 
on on medical sound medical fact um and he rejected this this is a really educated guy so no no i don't think there's anything political i'm not in the norwegian government and i thought okay um it's i thought this was <laughs> i didn't think i was going to have to stop at the first statement right he was going to do I thought further down the road of my argument, I was going to meet resistance. Not not with the first. I thought it was a self-evident truth. Of course, it's fucking political. Of course it is. Um, but but no, no. Um, and I thought this is an educated man, smart guy, um, well-respected, reasonably affluent. Uh, and and uh, I like his family enormously. Um, and yet uh he is unable to entertain the possibility of corruption in his own government to any extent you know at all so but but hiroyuki's point about um about imperialism and and what like for example the u.s nato war machine does that's another one that people have a hard time with and and uh if you say well but you know <laughs> They've pushed NATO further eastward after promising not to. Uh, does that not matter? Well, uh, you know, Russia doesn't have any right to say what what the rest of Europe wants to do. And I said, okay, but that's exactly what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? The United States did object to there being uh, foreign uh, missiles and military infrastructure 60 miles from uh, Florida. And we almost, you know, reached Armageddon. Um, but but it's not okay for Moscow to say that now. Uh, and this is, you know, this is very hard to explain to people that that these conversations go on every day. Angry phone calls are made from Washington, are made from diplomatic representatives of the White House and the Pentagon and the State Department, whether it's influencers or movie stars or just diplomatic hacks. They make phone calls, they show up, they have conversations with people like the health minister of Norway or the defense minister of Slovakia or something. And they say, do this. Because, you know, we'll be very happy if you do this. And the implication is we will be very unhappy if you don't do this. And that's that's what bullying is, as Hiroyuki said. It's arm twisting. And this is the crisis currently is that the U.S. effectiveness at bullying has waned. They aren't as good. They don't have the leverage they had 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Um, yeah, Corey, and then, but I remind me, I want to talk about the Dutch farmer protest before we wrap up today, and which is a ways away. Corey, yeah. Yeah, just years ago, I was in conversation with Alexandra Valente, I think you pronounce her last name, Valente. Um, and she runs the, what's it called, the International 360. Uh, website. It used to be called Libya 360 during the invasion on um, annihilation of Libya. Anyway, we're having this discussion about, um, you know, the self-identified left and everything that we've basically been speaking about today. And I just uh, made a note of this because I thought it was very good. So when we're writing back and forth, she said, what does it mean to be anti-imperialist? It means supporting nations under attack by empire. 
even when or if it is opportunistically inconvenient. It means to stand with all nations under attack, without prejudice, without wavering, and to never serve interests of empire, even if it means you sacrifice popularity or lose social media followers. And right. Yeah. Um, I think that people also don't realize the nature of... Uh, of of what gets bartered between governments um what happens at at these these trade summits and and uh the carrot stick process that that the US promises well we can will allow for you know a lowering of tariffs on this or that but if you don't we would look unfavorably upon you know this and this and this and uh, you know the most recent this was Trump and um, the the Chinese phone Huawei uh, if that's how it's pronounced uh, and I have a Huawei phone as a matter of fact it's the best smartphone I've ever owned um, and and but but they're not going to sell anymore at all in fact they're they're sort of masking a change of um, of label uh, because because Google you know, withdrew its cooperation. You can't use any Google platforms and so on and so on and so on. Uh, so, but I think people don't realize the, 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 the level of, um, of manipulation that, that a very powerful country has against a, a very poor and, you know, not powerful country. Um, did somebody else just have their hand up? Um, I want to talk very quickly touch on the Dutch farmer protests, because there are now uh, massive protests in solidarity with the Dutch farmers in Germany, Spain, Serbia, uh, uh, Italy, massive. And there has not been a single mention of it in Western mainstream media. Uh, the the Dutch protests are ongoing. The farmers recognize they're desperate. They recognize this is you know their livelihood, um, their whole identity, their what they do, what their family has done, often for generations, um, is at risk. And <clears throat> I will include in the links today a pretty good analysis of of the logic behind um, Mark Roots, the Prime Minister of, of Holland. Uh, his the argument for for cutting down um, beef production because of cow farts, uh, and and you know you look at all the crises. You look at Ukraine and and you look at the black market in weaponry happening because of Ukraine. The massive pollution toxicity. You look at open pit mining and and the mining for rare earth minerals and deep sea mining. You look at all this stuff, but no, no, we're to take cow farts seriously. That's that's actually an important fact. Johan, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate something. We talked a lot about in relation to this, so. There's an ongoing food crisis in, in Africa, especially uh, the, the Red Cross mentions that hundreds of millions and specifically sub-Saharan Africa will go hungry and everything is blamed on Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, of course, but we, we've spoken about this. And, and to, in this context, decimate the farmers of, of such productive nations as 
that's these European ones, it's, it's, it's tantamount to genocide because the effects will be the deaths of millions. I mean, it's, it's, it's no getting around that. Yeah. I think, yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, we're talking about also the escalation of uh, the, the marketing campaigning for the Green New Deal that uh, synthetic meats, I now have noticed a lot more advertising for synthetic meats, not so much insect protein, but just, you know, various, you know, mung bean meat and stuff. And from everything I can find, nobody likes this stuff. Um, everybody who has tasted been part of some sample, you know, um, test group eating synthetic meat hates it. Um, nobody is fooled by it. I read one about eggs. The other was very funny because the guy said, these things are just disgusting. You know, um, they taste bad. They feel bad in your mouth. They don't resemble eggs in the least. And I refuse to eat them. So this is an interesting topic because it speaks to the the kind of the hubris of um, of the 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 people behind the Green New Deal, assuming that technology would you know easily be able to to fool people and and you know along with with a propaganda campaign that people would be amenable to eating mung bean meat and and soy eggs and what you know and eventually i suppose cricket burgers uh but they're not apparently and and uh i i don't think they will be and it's interesting because in norway which is a very big hunting culture this is a, this is a hunting country uh everybody has a, a just about everybody short of the west side of oslo has uh a huge meat locker in their house with with just tons of moose and elk and goose and and um, deer and so forth venison and, and massive amounts that could feed an army for years and uh, they're they're not these are people who are not going to eat um, who are not going to eat insect protein I can tell you not not unless a gun is to their head um anyway okay so so i've just before rob and we'll jump to you the the these protests have spread i mean farmers in spain and germany see the writing on the wall i mean they know these policies are coming to to their country i mean it has been openly stated in some cases in spain i believe and they're just preemptively protesting already because uh, this spells the end of, of um, millions of jobs. And, and uh, nobody's under any illusion about this. And it's all under cover of this climate uh, discourse that, of course, I, as people know by now, pretty much reject uh, in total. But it's... it's um, it's not being reported, and yet this is why I I objected to the Elmer's article saying, oh, you know, the abject, you know, passivity and and something of ninety five percent of the population. No, there's there's millions of people out there, all the farmers in Europe essentially, who are not passively accepting any of it. They they recognize the problem, I think. But but I wrote in the last blog piece that that one of the problems is that that this centralization of power in the hands of very few people in the state is more entrenched now than ever before in history and it happened while everybody was asleep 
on their smartphones. And now it's, they are being traumatized and terrorized by this power. And it's very hard to resist in some cases. Okay, Rob. Well, exactly. And when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I think even as a kid, I knew this word racketeering. It was, it was um, you know, it's interesting. There is no word for it in Swedish, but um, it, it, was, it was part of the news media, the mass media in the United States. It was part of the entertainment media. People were generally aware of a thing called racketeering. They could even tell you what it is. Um, people had a generally pretty high, there was a pretty significant awareness among most people or met, you know, ordinary, regular people about corruption, about monopoly, uh, about, you know, anti-monopoly policies, um, and about, you know, these things. And this is, these things have been on the increase since then. They're, as you just said, they, they, We've, we, as, as well as war crimes, you know, from our side, from, you know, our countries, from the West, these, these things have all, if you make a graph, I mean, they're just going up and up and up and up. And at the same time, people's general awareness of them has just dropped to zero. They, they, these these yeah. curves have crossed each other in opposite directions. And I don't understand it at all. I, I don't. Well, I don't but this it. is... Yeah, I don't either. No, it's a very good question. We've talked about it a little in terms of the arts that, you know, we had recently last week, the Rolling Stones and, and um, the ever insufferable Patti Smith and a whole group of people, you know, rock for Ukraine, a benefit concert for Ukraine. Um, yes. Not exactly the 60s, you know, and and uh, uh, the, the co-opting of dissent the neutralization of dissenting voices has been one of the success stories uh, of the system, I think. Um, Johan? Yeah, I'm just thinking, yeah, this is back to the previous topic, but isn't this kind of a, a it should be structurally speaking, a great moment for, for building international working class solidarity because, you know, starving Africa is, is obviously going to unlock their resources and, more than previously, you know, not, not least these massive amounts of unexploited sub-Saharan petroleum reserves. And, you know, maybe, this maybe the European farmers and industrial workers getting shafted here could possibly warm up to the idea that they have common interests with the, the impoverished African denizens of our resource colonies. Maybe there's something to this idea after all. Yeah. Um... I think that is a good point, and and I would like to think it is a good time for that. And uh, uh, Corey had recommended to me last week, um, a couple of weeks ago, reading uh, Jonathan Crary's new book, Scorched Earth, which I then um, borrowed from heavily in my recent blog post. And uh, it's a terrific book. It's more polemical than than his earlier work, which is more theoretical. But it's but it's very very good. And uh, it, it's it's stuff like this. And I I read it, and I think the only thing I objected to in in his polemics was the idea that that the internet is sort of 
deterministically evil that the, because I think it is it can be a tool for talking to people and 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 informing people and and it's difficult because the platforms are compromised you know you can't go on Twitter and it's almost impossible to not sound snarky and and angry on Twitter I don't know it's genius how they did that but it's hard but it's not impossible i would like to believe it's not impossible corey yeah now that you mentioned that can i just read a little paragraph out of the book that yes. actually i think you highlighted um yeah. yeah and that's great that he sent us um you know those kind words about the podcast and the book anyway the internet complex quickly became an integral part of neoliberal austerity and its ongoing erosion of civil society and its replacement by monetized online simulations of social relations. It fosters the belief that we are no longer dependent on each other, that we are autonomous administrators of our lives, that we manage our friends in the same way we manage all of our online accounts. It also heightens what social theorist Elena Hussini calls the narcissistic apathy of individuals emptied of desire for community and who live in passive conformity with the existing social order. And I, and I just wanted to add another thing I've been seeing um, lately, this growing thing that children, um, older children have where they can't come out of their house any longer because they're riddled with anxiety and the parents have accepted this and just, um, you know, so-and-so Jonathan can't come out of the house. He has anxiety. He has to stay in the house and these kids yeah. no longer come out and they're on the, they're online inside looking and talking to God knows who, um, looking at God knows what. Anyway, the parents have no clue and they've just accepted this, right? Like so-and-so has anxiety. They can't come out anymore. Their, their house with and they, they can't come out, they can't cope. And so our youth, our children are becoming, um, you know, addicted, which is, you know, part of, part, I mean, that's how everything functions. And anyway, it's just sort of terrifying, no, terrifying it, because these children are growing up on it, they're becoming addicted and now they're becoming where they can't come outside and they can only feel you know, oh, they have to stay on the internet and it's the only place they feel safe and it's stay home, stay safe. I mean, their their minds are being colonized, um, you know, more and more and more in so many different ways. And yeah, it's where we're at. It's insane yeah. how we're how we're accepting this. Well, <clears throat> yeah, and and I I mean I I feel as if earlier versions of this um, existed. I know there was a wave of, of in Japan, probably Hiroyuki can verify that, um, uh, of people refusing to leave the house. There's a name for that, right? It's one of the phobias. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and you also look at if we had, we had matching curves here, if we had some, some sort of graph, we could look at the incidence of drug addiction um, um, increases in alcoholism and so forth, uh, self-harm, you know, especially in children or young adolescents, young adults, uh, all of these things matched to, you know, uh, 
a year by year timeline up to the present, up to the, the COVID story. Uh, it would be interesting to look at it because it's, it's, it, it, these impairments, these pathologized states of fear and anxiety, you know, undifferentiated anxiety that, 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 that most of these kids don't, from what I understand, can't identify what the threat is. It's just an overwhelming uh, sense of, of angst and, and directionless fear. Uh, I feel we've been building to this, that, that things have been building to this if, if we look at things psychologically. And there's certainly there have been writers um, in, in psychoanalysis, uh, um, what's his name, the French guy, um, Andre Green, um, who, who uh, and the, oh, I can see my mind, but I'll provide links to some of them. It's very difficult reading. It's, it's very sort of specialized clinical uh, stuff, but but the sense of cognitive and, and, and sort of the personality changes in people, the, this infusion of incredible anxiety. Bernard Stiegler writes about it. There's a, there's a lot of people um, who, who have. And I think that this is, is unsurprising and was, but, but it's, but we're also, this is a class issue again. I, you know, this is the, the affluent bourgeoisie are clearly the most neurotic people in the world. And the ones because kids in Lagos or, or Johannesburg really don't have the luxury to, to be anxious. And it's like a white disease or something. It's a white privileged disease to some, to some extent. Uh, but, but, but it, that's a whole topic too, because it is the advanced industrialized, you know, um, connected wired West uh, that has been the target of most of these campaigns of um, to, to infantilize and, 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 and to scare and, and terrorize the populace. Uh, it has been, it has been the Commonwealth. It has been Western Europe. It has, it has been North America uh and and scandinavia um but certainly i think much less in certain other places and you know this becomes a very complicated question obviously um but but it it's i'll try to provide some links we, i think we're gonna have a lot of links from this podcast okay um anybody else here apropos of this well yeah uh you guys are really slow. You're very, you're very slow on muting. Okay, I'm just going to tell you all that. It's positive criticism, but you're not, you're not quick draw enough. Quick draw, not McGraw. Quick draw, no, you're very, you're not. You're very uh, slow. Yeah, you're my son lives in Mexico. Is very slow. Yeah, in Mexico, Mexico City, which is uh, my favorite city. I've been there like 35 times since 1991, and um. But it's really gotten strange there as well. Uh, people are really affected by this terrorizing mass media. They're, he was walking through a park uh, the other day, sent me a picture. He said, look, zoom in over there on this picture. It's a support group for climate change. And all these young people are sitting <laughs> in the park, you know, and they, 
I'm like, oh no, this is probably like that. There was this Facebook group that's one of our, one of my former Facebook friends invited me to back then. I remember when it was because I lived in Oregon at the time. It was uh, it was a group, uh, a private invitation only support group for climate change, and um, I went in there and it was really so extremely disturbing. I stuck around for three days just to see, just to try to measure how crazed it is, but. These people were absolutely convinced and bought into this idea that uh, not only is climate change uh, extremely destructive, but there's nothing that can be done about it. It's past the tipping point. Everybody on earth will be dead within about probably about seven years. Yeah. And they were all supporting each other, uh, you know, psychologically somehow for the end. Well, so, I, I mean, can... if you're a young person growing up now, and this is the authorities are reinforcing this, and the mass media is telling you this, and the COVID, you're gonna, everybody's gonna die if you breathe, and so on. And Mexicans, they they, they have never had a mask mandate, but they have had a, they even now, almost three years later, they have like fifty percent of the people voluntarily walk around in public, outside, masked. I, and, um, and, it, yeah. and the last thing is, uh, for example, you, you see young Mexicans today, it's so absolutely counter to former times in our lifetime. I mean, you'll see a young man going to a Panda Express to order some Chinese food in a chain restaurant. And it's the type where, you, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you, you like you carry this little lunch tray and they put the plate on the tray and you have to carry your tray to your table and put the tray on your table and sit down and eat it. Well, there's a, he, he, my son described you, he saw this scene, a uh, young man is in there and he can't, he's so helpless that he, he's unable to carry the tray, carry his food to his table. His girlfriend has to carry it for them. And as they're walking to the table, he's putting two fingers on the edge of the tray under it like helping to carry it yeah uh, there's uh, but I hear severe these trauma I, uh, I hear these stories all the time um I, I do with young people and it was in brooklyn a friend of mine family uh, the brother came over with his wife and they insisted on wearing masks indoors they opened the windows it was freezing out they opened the windows every 15 minutes to air the place i mean just absurd you know, um, fairy tale symbolism. It had nothing to do with medicine whatsoever. But with the climate thing, again, we, you know, I've heard, we've all heard this, these predictions, these ominous, you know, methane bubbles. And, you know, they love this, this vocabulary, wet bulbs. That was one I said, you know, all the stuff invented to, to sound I guess scientific and whatnot. When so the the predictions have all been um, uh, uh, are familiar, and yet I have yet to see. Um, I mean, Bill Gates just bought a whole bunch more beachfront property. Um, so did Jeff Bezos. They're running out of shit to buy these guys. But you know that everybody who you know. Um, should know about this stuff. They're still investing in the future with their 401k. And um, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence of, of um, the ruling class jumping off the tops of buildings or out of despair for the end of the earth. Okay, uh, Johan Corey Hiroyuki. 
Go ahead, you go first, Corey. Um, I was just going to add to that, Margaret Solomon, who helped sort of, I was, I would suggest she helped profit on Greta Thunberg's um, whole persona. Um, and the climate thing before COVID was um, launched onto the public. Um, basically, I mean, it was her who suggested um, very, very stern, um, you know, sort of conversation and, and speech to get to get people's attention, um, houses on fire, like in specific language. Anyway, that's covered in that um, book I wrote. And anyway, she has her her email is infoclimateawakening.org and she has the Climate Mobilization Project. And it's very, very influential her um, contribution. Anyway, she, she's talking about climate emotion conversations over the past few months for participants um, to speak of their grief and terror, rage, shock, betrayal, guilt, alienation. Um, the, the first time people are putting these feelings into words, these painful emotions, um, critical to mounting a protective response. And she says that we can pour these emotions into disruptive protests and nonviolent direct action. Um, which as history and social science demonstrate are the fastest path to transformative change. Um, for example, in 2019, after weeks of protests that shut down parts of London led by the climate activist group Extinction Rebellion, Britain declared a climate emergency and became the first major economy to legally commit to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. But, you know, as I've said from the beginning of this net zero, net zero has nothing to do with zero emissions, absolutely nothing. It's all about carbon markets and all this transformation. All it is is markets to prop up and expand the capitalist system itself and to keep those in power, in power, right? To keep um, that ruling class in place to- Yeah, of protect, course. Protect. So it's not as though we're um, actually, that any of this is for, you know, creating a better world or mitigating climate or, you know, um, mitigating ecological collapse, resource depletion, none of it. Everything they're pushing, all the market solutions will accelerate ecological collapse. There's no question. Yeah, no. And there's no, there's no desperate, you don't feel a desperate panic terror running through the, any of the people making these announcements. You know, if people really believe, really genuinely believed that the earth there was a good chance the earth would not last 20 years it was going to you know become unbearable unlivable uninhabitable there would be a very different reaction um than there is they would sound different and and they don't it's just it's just marketing it's all it is johan yeah yeah i think maybe the the most viable way forward here especially for for younger generations might be to affirm the inevitable collapse and decline of industrial civilization as in itself something hopeful and, and life-affirming. Because if, if you think about it, I mean, do, do we really want some kind of intergalactic technological capitalism anyway? Right. right. Um, Hiroyuki? I think we need to um, kind of... Uh, 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 put down this uh, um, dynamics. I think um, um, 
I think what's going on is institutionalization of um, topics. Uh, once, uh, for example, if, when uh, climate crisis um, is um, uh, defined by the uh, capitalist institution, um, the uh, all the pros and cons they are provided by the uh, the same institution, and uh, when this happens, it's safe, safe to discuss. And the same thing is happening with um, I would I would say the same thing is happening with Ukraine as well. Um, we have some institutions uh, going against it, um, and uh, once uh, the mainstream culture uh, embrace it under capitalism, it becomes institutionalized, and it is. Um, um the framework is set by the uh, institution the the um and we you really can't have constructive uh discussion that leads to uh constructive solutions and many of the things we discuss um are in this mode and um for example the, the thing about um palestinian uh conflict um it's very very hard to discuss because there are so many um things um uh, so many angles are captured by the uh, uh establishment and it, it it's it's just impossible it's just not constructive and I think the same thing is happening with the imperialism itself. And this yeah. is really a tough situation because once this whole idea is institutionalized under capitalism, I mean, how, how do you go about it? Because you, you, you have no tools, you know? Right. Well, I mean, we started this thing today with this question of, of you know, how does one talk to people um, who are who are skeptical of, uh, who are ready to call you a conspiracy theorist or call any alternative reading or accusation of corruption or, or malignant planning or so forth. I mean, I, a lot of people will say to me, oh, that, I can't believe there's a whole giant, you know, world economic world, all these people and world leaders who are synchronized to say these same things and they have a big plan and you go, well, okay, I understand that, that, that may be hard to believe, um, but but there is historical precedent, and and I would like you to look at you know this amount of information that I have here and read these things. The problem is, you know, they likely won't read those things that you give them. Very few people will, and they'll read them skeptically with a closed mind and and find a way to reject them. I don't know exactly how to get past that. Um, one of the problems with podcasts, for example, is you can only read so much. You can't have, you know, I mean, we were talking about bringing in statistics. It is hard. Statistics are boring and, and they're hard to listen to um, without, if there's not a chalkboard where somebody's writing them down or a whiteboard or something, they are difficult. You know, that's why the PowerPoint presentation thing was invented so that you know, there's a visual teaching aid, a visual comprehension aid. Uh, it's very hard. And and this is social media, of course, is designed for trivial conversation, for pictures of your cat, 
um, and and chuckles the clown at your kid's party and you know the most inane infantile stuff possible and it's there to trigger anger uh you know people get in and i've been guilty of it too i mean it's you know um people smear each other and attack each other stab each other in the back throw each other under the bus um it's like on a on a level that is inconsequential somebody has 600 followers and i mean who cares you know and they're telling you that you know you're scum and they're gonna go if i were here i'd kill you and you think but you know um it's it's a really strange um intoxicated intoxicated state that that social media induces in people i think but anyway the the point is that um this is why johan and i have been planning and hopefully we're an already underway with the final goal of having a kind of people's university um, of some sort of a way to have workshops of, of, of some kind of face to face jonathan query makes really great important points about face-to-face -face communication um uh in his recent book it that's the way forward somehow because you can only do so much in on social media on the internet only so much um, you can you can provide things to read. Corey, you know, wrong kind of green is an epic, unbelievable web page that everybody should read, but lots of people won't. Uh, and and so, and lots of people are already damaged by by the last twenty years uh, of of heavy indoctrination, heavy propaganda. Um, so you do you do what you can. It's not going to happen overnight. I just feel like the best one can hope for are these kind of incremental, tiny baby steps um, to crack through. And maybe it's too late. I don't know. Uh, but I don't think so. We're not going to die from methane bubbles or, you know, Earth is too hot to inhabit. It's not going to happen. But, um, you know, might, might, we die from tomahawk missiles fired by, um, you know, psychotic, uh, you know, uh, sleep-starved American soldiers. Yeah, that's more likely. I can buy that. We might die from microplastics, too. I mean, that's possible as well. I don't know. Okay, final thoughts from anybody, please? No, slow unmute buttons. Hiroyuki. Uh well, I was going to say something. I just, uh, I forgot. Uh, what was it? Oh, <laughs> you know what? Um, um, yeah, I was just, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to a friend about, um, uh, we're trying to organize a gathering, uh, you know, face to face. And um, um, in the conversation, um, um, she mentioned that, uh, What's going on is um, uh, when we debate things and we um, separate, you know, we, we uh, uh, call name uh, to each other and um, um, we basically end human relationships over yeah. issues, you know? And this, yeah. is, this, this is what's going on is that we are valuing those topics more than a person, 
you know, more than our life. I mean, you know, this, this is, there's no way around it. It's a strange situation, you know? I mean, we should be able to be friends, you know, even though we don't agree with everything, but but no, we, we don't agree with this thing and that person is dead to me. Yeah. And we, we're willing to do this. And it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, this is not good, you know? We, we should be able to speak to, each other as human being and that's where it starts everything you know so um yeah this is i i yeah i have to think but about i mean this, this is a really difficult situation because we're talking about existential questions so if i swallow your opinion i'm not gonna be alive you know that kind of mentality you know but at the same time I, I, you know it doesn't work like that you know it's well yeah this is a tough situation you know it's uh but and people we, become okay i'm not gonna i'm gonna shut up for a minute but i mean you know but we we've had you know this kind of conversation so many times and you know like john you we went through this crazy thing about you know under uh climate climate discussion you know people are saying people criticizing you for having kids right you know right. <laughs> I, mean, no, no, no. I mean what's up with that <laughs> no, I but, mean, this is, yeah, but that's a good point the, there there is a a real i mean part of what prop this current wave last 10 years this current phase of propaganda has done is is wildly intensify um a, a lynch mob mentality social media helps too but 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 people really are um uh ready ready to injure other people for for not keeping an appropriate social distance or something uh let alone other i mean th there's this intensification of this overwrought exaggerated importance given to what are really pretty minor issues yeah. right and yeah and i mean yeah it, it's strange that's what's happened and it is it's disturbing i yeah i, I mean it's a, it's a it's a it's a different truth that we're not seeing each other as human beings yeah yeah no no, no. it's true that's true um johan yeah so what what you're talking about is, is kind of evidence that the, the one of the key issues here is a, a huge lack of, of perspective on things and as you say i mean we're, we're not maybe gonna, gonna die from from methane ex, expulsions or something like that but we are going to die we're gonna die pretty soon because life is is it's pretty short you know and and the issue is what, what we do with those those few measly years we have and Shorter for some of, of us than others. Yeah, but, but a lot of the COVID it. situation and the, the contemporary propaganda, it kind of amounts to, to you know, acquiescing to a, to a denial of our mortality in, in the West, in the industrial Absolutely, world. absolutely, yeah. No, I think that's really important. And I think that's, we, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, about the instrumental thinking, science, I feel like, you know, we and I've written about this now for three or four blog posts at quantum theory and so forth. Mm -hmm. There we're reaching these 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 theoretical dead ends, these cul-de-sacs that that um 
that are, are running into this denial of death, of mortality, this ontological failure to, I mean, failure to ontologically articulate, um, uh, uh, you know the current state of things there's you know it's a the loss of religious belief in a lot of people the antagonism toward religion um and i feel like god you know nietzsche and people as much as i hate you know was really right um far more than i want to admit and so yeah it's it's um it's distressing and 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 that denial of death was something that people were writing about 60, 70 years ago. There, you know, there was beginning of modernism and there was a kind of critique of, of you know, the enlightenment and industrial society. And, and it just went completely off the rails at some point. Um, and, I, and that's a topic, you know, we've all written about it a little bit. It's a topic. Um, and now, though, you know, we live under the aegis of um, a surveillance state, an intense surveillance state that tracks everything we do, collects all data on us all the time, 24-7. They themselves don't know what the fuck to do with it, but they're collecting it anyway. That's a huge drain on the environment. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the earth seems to have an infinite capacity, I think, to adjust and self-regulate and correct itself. But I don't know if humans do at all anymore. Um, okay, last thought. Uh, Corey, Rob, anybody quickly? Uh, me? I'm here. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, last, I, last I, I lost. Uh, I lost most of my... Uh, friends uh friends you know decades long friendships uh, about about uh, 8 or 10 years ago because um um they you know they they would probably say it's my fault but i say you know they became very hostile because um i was spending some they found out first of all they found out that the last time i voted was 2008 and this is an unpardonable sin one must always continue voting and it must be for of course democrats um and <laughs> and, and 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 then they found out that i was spending some of these years of my uh life as short as it you know whatever's left of it now i'm 55 um you know, writing a junkyard blog about why I thought that, uh, for example, uh, you know, totally obliterating a Libyan society, like physically and in every other means, uh, is just a really shitty thing to do, even if Obama said it was good, right? Obama was the last time I voted, 2008, I voted for Obama because he said, the Bush-Cheney wars were wrong, and we we're not going to do that. We're going to end those. But then he, then he obliterated Libya, and I would try to talk about this, and they would say, "Oh, what kind of sources are those, Rob?" Right? And right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't even that, need yeah. sources. Stop being an idiot. And then doing the same thing to Syria, and uh, expanding the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I said, 
oh, so now you're overthrowing the government of Ukraine in 2014. Oh, and on the next day after the government was installed, uh, that puppet government announced that they're going to renege on the Kharkiv Treaty. And now Sevastopol will become a U.S. naval base. And I was going right. around saying, you know, that's a really that's a you know what? Here's my opinion. It's the same as George fucking Tenet and Henry Henry Kiss Henry Kissinger. You know, that's a really crazy idea. Right. And, and it's Henry really Kissinger, not going to work out. <laughs> Henry Kissinger, who's 99 years old, by the way. Um, made a statement the other day critical of um, U.S. foreign policy and and a number of people, you know, said this is this is the death of irony. This is the true death of irony that we find ourselves um, in in agreement with Henry Kissinger. And it really like this is the a, a yeah. final state yes. of, of yes. Um, yes. surreality. OK, um, yeah, I, I you know, the, the, these are I mean, these are this is the whole question. I don't hey, know. I have no Just answer. one last thing. They, they laughed at me at the time. Back in 2015, there was a birthday party I went to. They knew that I had a problem with uh, like this Dr. Strange lovey and move into Ukraine. And they ordered a birthday cake. It was somebody's birthday from a Ukrainian baker. Here we are in Lexington, Kentucky. And they said, Rob, it's from a Ukrainian baker. We had to drive 30 minutes to get there. What do you think? I was like, okay, whatever, right? And then I said, you know, it's just not going to work out. And they're like, ah, ha, ha, what do you want? World peace? What do you want? World peace? And they were laughing in my that, face. This you know? reminds and what are me they saying of, now? What are they saying But now? this reminds me of a, but see, this is a perfect example of, there was, a, and then we're going to wrap up here because we could keep going forever on this topic, I fear. Um, Adorno said cynicism is another, just another mode of conformity. Um, and this is a more profound and, and, you know, I don't want to get a deeper comment than one might think, because that voice that says, what do you want world peace? That's this, this voice of cynicism. And it's, a, it's the implications of that desire to um, accept what perhaps deep down they know is irrational, an irrational killing machine that is the U.S. military. They knew this. They know this. Vietnam took place, you know, Iraq took place. Around, but, but that kind of cynicism, it's the same thing when Nike ran an ad um, for Nike uh, uh, basketball shoes, it was a print ad. It was only a print ad and they only ran it for a little while, but it was a picture of the Nike shoe and the text was made in a sweatshop. Huh. It's the same cynicism, right? It's the same cynicism. Everybody thought chuckle, chuckle, chortle, chortle, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's pretty funny because that identification with the aggressor deep down is is one of the pathologies of, of um, certainly American society, I think. Um, and it's 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 cynicism, it's cynicism, but it masks something that is probably really deep and um, beyond the confines of this podcast. Johan, did you have a last thought there? No, no, I had no. OK, then I'm going to wrap up. Um, Thank you, everyone. Uh, Varun wasn't unable to make it. He'll be back next time.
We miss him. Um, Jack Lippman, uh, as always, thank you. I wanted to thank Jessica Close for sending me so much source material all of the time. And I just wanted to give a shout out to her for doing that. It's much appreciated. Um, so thank you, Corey. Uh, Corey, how's the squirrel, by the way? Sure, I had it on mute because it's really uh, noisy outside today. Um, the squirrel is sort of terrorizing me now. It's chasing me everywhere <laughs> for peanuts. And um, it's, I keep threatening that I'm going to get it and take it to the forest on the street. But so far, uh -oh. yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Lots of baby yeah, no. birds still being born. It's really, really beautiful right now. I've been outside so much. Last night I had a fire and, you know, it's just... It reminds you of how little you actually need, you know, when you sit by a fire and it brings such, yep. such warmth and fulfillment and you realize what's important in life and, um, yep. you know, what this crazy system, um, yeah. you know, sort of how it enslaves us and takes us away from all the things that are pertinent and important and beautiful. And yeah, no, I was, you know, I, I agree. I was watching my kids play yesterday um twins are five and the baby is three and they can play in fact they prefer playing with just junk they find um uh bottle caps and you know the bottle to you know the top to a jelly squeeze bottle and a couple of sticks and and toilet paper <laughs> pinning to their nose for some strange reason um and I said, what are you? And they said, elephants, like, duh. And I said, <laughs> I said, right, of course you are. Uh, and they ran around and then later they had become something else entirely by just rearranging these things because children's imagination is just infinite and, and society kills it off. And I think I dread watching that happen in the coming years because it's just beautiful right now to watch them play. You know, it's inspiring and it's gonna disappear at some point, I fear, so. All right, thank you all. Uh, Hiroyuki, Rob, Johan, Corey, thanks Varun. We'll be back next time. Um, and uh, that's it, bye. Thanks, John. Bye.